And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Robert E. Moffitt, Senior Fellow, Health Policy Studies with the Heritage Foundation. Bob, it's an honor to have you on with us today. I'm very happy to be here, really. Uh, Great to talk with you. I always learn a lot whenever you're on with us, and I appreciate it very much. You've written a lot about the left's cure, quote-unquote, for health care woes, and why it's far worse than the malady. And I'm wondering if we could just talk about that general subject a little bit. You know, you might see a bumper sticker, or you might hear some name-calling, or or politicians promising us the world in terms of health care. But then um, when we start peeling the layers of the onion, you realize, wow, my health care costs have gone up, and my privilege of having health care is being deteriorated. So can we talk a little bit about health care today? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, you're dealing with a uh, healthcare system. It's not really a system, but the healthcare sector of the American economy is really a huge and technologically advanced and complex system. Uh, it's right now, in terms of dollar value, it's about a three point six trillion dollar uh, sector of the economy. About eighteen wow. percent between eighteen. Pretty soon, pretty soon, it'll be twenty percent. One of, out of every five dollars that we spend in this economy. So it's an enormous thing. It's a large and growing sector of the American economy. I said it's complex, meaning that basically what we have today is a is not a system, but it's kind of a it's kind of a set of third-party payment arrangements, private insurance and government programs, both in the public and the private sector, which are all governed by very, very different rules and regulations and and various different financing mechanisms. And um, so it is, is, there's no question, it is complex. It is unfortunately very bureaucratic because it is a third-party payment system meaning you don't pay the doctor directly. The doctor is paid through the bureaucratic apparatus of, a, of an insurance company or, for that matter, the federal government, whether it's Medicare or Medicaid. So it's not, there's nothing simple about any of this. The problem is, as we all know, is that you know we don't seem to have a, a good ability in this system, if we call it a system, to control costs. And too many of us find out that, you know, what we expected with the kind of quality care that we expect is not always being delivered. Um, and, you know, quality was not much of a problem for most of us. In other words, perceived to be a problem maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago because we all just, you know, we just naturally all thought that, you know, in America, you know, we have the highest quality, the best health care in the world. That is true in certain places, but it is not universally true. Hmm. If, you, if you are, for example, in a Medicaid program, which is the uh, government program for low-income persons, you will often find that you have a difficult time, even if you have a Medicaid card, you know, you're, you're eligible for Medicaid, you're a, a low-income person, you have a Medicaid card, but you will often find that you have a hard time getting access to a physician, a physician who will take care of you. 
And the reason for that, there are a number of reasons for that. One major reason for that is it is a government program which basically reduces reimbursement to doctors and hospitals and clinics and home health agencies. And uh, in, in some cases, uh, in many cases, if a Medicaid patient walks through the door um, and the doctor treats that Medicaid patient, the doctor actually loses money. And I know, frankly, a lot more about this than most people because I was chairman of the Maryland Healthcare Commission mm. uh, for close to three years. I was appointed by Governor Hogan and, and uh, confirmed by the Maryland State Senate. And I had responsibility for overseeing both, you know, uh, the basic health insurance markets as well as the as well as the uh, as well as hospitals and, and and other and other medical facilities in Maryland, mm-hmm. and so we followed healthcare costs very closely. One, I remember one time, <clears throat> the staff of the Maryland uh, Healthcare Commission did a study of of reimbursement for physicians, and what they found was is that in the case of Medicaid, it was often uh, the case <laughs> that. A uh, that the co- that the doctor's reimbursement for providing a medical service was often less than the cost of actually delivering the Medicaid medical service itself. Wow! Which means once again, you know, somebody walks in the door, the doctor actually loses money. Now, this is very bad for poor people, frankly, uh, and that is that is a quality problem. Uh, there are other quality problems in the private sector as well. Sometimes you think you've got a great private health insurance plan and you find out that, in fact, it's not what you think it was. Uh, and even in, in employment-based health insurance, you find out sometimes that things that you thought would be covered or taken care of or not. Um, so we don't, you know, we're not problem-free. We have a lot of problems. And as I mentioned, I think, in the articles there's no question that, you know, our costs are, are, are much higher than they should be. Uh, the quality is uneven in the system. Uh, the system is very complex, and it's very bureaucratic. And so, you know, that is what, you know, that's the, that is the status quo that you and I and all the people listening to this program are, are confronted with. Now, in the House and in the Senate, you have a, an entirely different approach to this, uh, and that is to abolish, you know, all private health insurance, to abolish employment-based health insurance, and even abolish Medicare and Medicaid and the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program and just about every other third-party arrangement, uh, both in the public and the private sector. They call this the single-payer system or the single-payer proposal or Medicare for all, they use the phrase Medicare for all because Medicare is is uh, is a popular program. Um, <clears throat> but that um, or it's national health insurance, basically, yeah. where the federal government basically runs a single plan, and that single plan solves you know basically all all of the problems. Um, that is. Sound, it's a very appealing thing because it suggests a level of simplicity that we do not have in the current system. And the proponents of this system, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, uh, Senator Blumenthal uh, of uh, Connecticut, uh, Senator Kamala Harris, the vice presidential candidate, they all, you know, who sponsor this bill, it's, uh, the name of the bill is S1129, uh, Medicare for All. They promise that this will result in higher quality health care, 
it will be provide universal coverage, uh, and uh, it will be uh, not only higher quality, but it will be also lower cost. And um, my colleagues at Heritage have done a, a detailed analysis of both the House bill and the Senate bill, which proposes this. And I think it's important for your listeners to understand that this is not a fringe position anymore. It used to be. This was kind of, you know, something that was on the outlier, something that was on the margins of American uh, politics. But now it is a mainstream position of the Democratic Party. And a majority of House Democrats are in favor of abolishing all private and employment-based health insurance and establishing a single-payer system of national health insurance run directly by the Secretary of HHS and overseen directly by members of Congress. So ultimately, members of Congress will control the health care system. We think this would be a profound mistake. Um, and I'll tell you, I don't think, uh, well, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why. But what we have done is we've published a book on this called No Choice, No Exit, uh, which goes into details of the House and the Senate bill and also looks at the experience of other countries that have, have, that have established this type of a system, namely Great Britain, uh, the British system, and also uh, Canada, our neighbors to the north. And what we do is we focus specifically on the facts of the performance of these systems, and at the same time, uh, we analyze section by section, provision by provision, the details of the House and the Senate bills. Um, this sounds like a good book, and um, I, I fear, <laughs> in quotes, that the average listener is so inundated nowadays where um, there will only be a few, maybe a couple, maybe a handful, that will actually go the extra step and, and look up this book. But it looks like particularly it would be helpful to uh, a representative, a, a person serving in government, for them to get their hands around and study these real-world examples that you, you've taken the time to put into the book mm-hmm. and show that, I'm assuming you're going to show that there's big problems that don't come out in a simple bumper sticker or name-calling or these promises that the politicians constantly make to the world. Uh, can you describe the book a little bit more? Sure. Uh, we go into the book, uh, in, in, uh, we look at the House bill and the Senate bill and the provisions of the House bill and the Senate bill. And uh, we also look at the Canadian and the British system uh, as the living examples of a national health insurance system, which would, would be closest, really, uh, to the kind of thing, and the Canadian system even more so than the British system, closest to the kind of thing that um, the majority of the House Democrats and senior senators uh, are proposing. Uh, what we are saying is that they promise that Americans will have higher quality health care, uh, but they will, that Americans will actually uh, uh, pay less than they do today. Now, we do have very high health care costs in the United States. As I said, you know, we spend about 18% right now of our gross domestic product on health care. The British only spend around 9% uh, on so just literally half of what we spend. 
in terms of GDP, the percentage of the economy. Um, what we find, however, is that, in fact, if you look at what the bills actually require in terms of benefits and services, that Americans will actually pay more for health care under this proposal, under these proposals, than they do today. Uh, our analysts estimate that a single-payer program in the United States would require uh, a, a tax uh, just for the health care of 21.1% uh, of all earnings. And that would hit nearly two-thirds of the American households. Uh, so roughly three-quarters of all Americans would actually pay more for health care under a single-payer system or a Medicare-for-all system than they do today. Now, that 21.1%, um, is that, yeah. would that, all that go towards just the health care? Yes. That's oh, my. So, in other words, that's on top of what Americans pay now. Uh, we pay, on average, about 31% uh, in total federal, state, and local taxes. So what that really means, that under Medicare for All, or a single-payer system, uh, working Americans in general would see about half of their paychecks going to the federal government. Wow. Uh, that's a pretty significant increase in, in taxation. The other point that, you know, Senator Sanders and Kamala Harris and Senator Blumenthal and, uh, and others make is that, well, if you have a single-payer health care system, uh, overall, um, your national health care spending will decline. In other words, America spends more than any other uh, health care system in the world, uh, and, of course, their argument is it's always followed by our outcomes are not as good as everybody else. The truth of the matter is, is that this is a very bold proposition. The idea that we're actually going to spend less with a government program than we do under the current system <laughs> is really not supported by much uh, by many independent analysts. Uh, and I'll just give you one good example. <clears throat> the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C., is a very prominent and highly respected liberal think tank. Um, they do not generally agree with the Heritage Foundation on much of anything, including the direction of the rainfall. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but the urban uh, urban analysts. Uh, no, no, I don't know anyone who thinks that the urban analysts are anything other than first rate. They are first rate analysts. What they did is they estimated that a single prayer program would increase federal spending. Uh, over a 10-year ten, ten period of about $34 trillion. <laughs> that's a big $34 trillion. $4 trillion. Yeah, that's just the federal spending. But the nation's total health care spending, in other words, it wouldn't, in other words, the argument is, the, the argument the, the left likes to make is, well, yeah, but sure, you're not paying premiums anymore, you're not paying deductibles, but you're only going to pay taxes, but the taxes are going to be less than what you're paying today. Well, they point out that, in fact, over that 10-year period, we will increase federal spending by $34 trillion. But given, but given the demands or given the, 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 uh, the requirements of the bills in the, in the House and Senate, that the total health care spending would increase by $7 trillion. So, in other words, you know, what the Urban Institute analysts are saying is that you know, we're going to be spending more as a nation than we actually would otherwise spend. Mm. I mean, that's, 
again, this is a liberal think tank. This is not a conservative. Thing. No, no, I, I'm uh, not. I'm not an economist, but I mean, no. what what you're saying here sounds like a formula for, uh, in business terms, for bankruptcy. Well, I mean, it's it's bankruptcy only if you don't print money. I mean, right. you know, uh, but see, the government prints money. So the only thing you're talking about here is massive spending and debt. And so this will increase, you know, federal spending on a level we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. It will double federal spending on an annual basis. Oh, my. No question. Oh, that, that, that like sounds this. horrible. Um, well, I, it will. Oh. Yeah, I mean, that's a fact. I mean, it, you can't, you can't replace, you know, all private, I mean, we're talking about replacing all private uh, and existing public spending, you know, with a new national system that is going to provide, in effect, comprehensive coverage without deductibles, without copayments, you know, basically free care at the point of service. You can't do that without a massive increase massive, yes, in federal spending and a massive increase in federal taxation. You can't do it. You know, our, our our form of government seems to require a a people who are moral and who are intelligent and understand That's things. Correct. Um, That's right. You know, I on the morality side, I I think of a quotation from I believe it was the Apostle Paul. I think it was to the Thessalonians where he said, "When I was with you, I told you that if a man doesn't work." He shouldn't eat, you know, and that was New Testament. Um, And that that sort of principle comes out of the scriptures that if you're not willing to work, if you're able to work, um, I'm sorry, you're not going to get any food. And that sounds tough, but that's the very thing that we need nowadays. Um, I'm seeing and you're seeing we're all seeing uh, riotous behavior in various cities and sometimes I sit back and I think, besides the fact that this is horrible and these people are stealing the goods of other people and destroying them and with no intention of paying them back, my hunch destroying is that... livelihoods. My, yeah, and my hunch is that the people doing this um, really probably don't have jobs. And if they are getting paid, they're getting money funneled to them from George Soros or one of those uh, actors. And um, I, I'm all for people working and uh, keeping very busy and being productive in life. And that that's from the moral standpoint. That's from the standpoint of, let's say, the Ten Commandments. It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to say, I want what you have, and I'm willing to to by force and and even by legislative force take what you have and redistribute it to others who are not willing to work but will vote for me that is immoral i agree i the the, the point that you make is a very important point and it's something that should not be forgotten when john adams and james madison and the founding fathers of this country were you know writing the constitution Adams, I think, said it on more than one occasion, that the a government of a free society requires a virtuous people. Mm. Jefferson has been has, has made the uh, emphasized greatly that um, that it is absolutely essential if people are going to govern themselves that they are aware, they're educated uh, to what is at stake in terms of their public life, and. 
it, the fact of the matter is is that to to be a citizen of a free society where you ultimately have to make the key decisions at the end of the day about who in fact is going to hold the reins of power people need intellectual and moral discipline yes. to make those decisions correctly yes and without that you are not going to make good decisions That's abraham right. lincoln said it best the american people for the people of a democratic society, the American people will get the government that they deserve. Oh, yeah. And so if we true. get a profligate government, if we get a profligate government that spends far beyond its capacity, uh, that ultimately ends up stealing from the general population because it devalues the currency by basically, devalu- by, by basically you know, printing money, printing paper, to cover its obligations, well, then we will reap the whirlwinds. Oh yeah, um, you know, there's no uh, there's no simple way out of this sort of thing. No, but it is absolutely essential for people to be engaged. In fact, I would make the argument that it is it's an obligation in Christian charity and duty to make yourself responsible. Well put for the public welfare. Well put. And uh, we've got maybe a couple minutes left, but one of the points I believe that you make, I I was just reading about you on the Heritage Foundation uh, website, and it says, uh, to achieve affordable health care, Moffitt has urged policymakers to give Americans more direct control over their health care dollars to eliminate barriers to personal choice in health care options and to allow citizens to own private health plans. Is that still your position? Oh, absolutely. I think that if you wanted to actually simplify the system and if you wanted to make sure that the system functioned properly, the best thing is to have America... We, look, households today, right? Not employers, not government, households, Right. Mm-hmm. either through taxation or premiums, we pay 100% of health care costs. That's right. Not employers. It's not the, you know, it's not the Department of Health and Human Services. We do, okay? The point is, is that if we control the health care dollars and we control the key decisions in the system, what kind of health plans you get, what kind of treatments and procedures you get, what kind of relationship you have with a physician. You don't have that control today. Most case, most of us do not. But if you do that, you revolutionize the system for the best. If you have a situation where people have unprecedented levels of personal choice over plans and providers, that means that plans and providers will do something they do not do today, and that is co- compete head-to-head That's right. for the allegiance for the long-term allegiance of individuals and families. That's what we need. Most of the people listening to this program have never owned their own health insurance, Hmm. and they never will. Their health insurance policy is owned by their employer, or it is basically a government program which is owned by the public. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is we have this huge economy which is supposed to be based on the private sector, a free market economy, but in fact, it's not that at all. Mm-hmm. It is actually something quite different. And what my colleagues at Heritage have proposed is that we give Americans more choice, we lower their health care costs, and we improve their quality. 
Yes. And we also restore the traditional, hear me, the traditional doctor-patient relationship. Oh, amen to that. Amen to that. The doctor doesn't work for the insurance company. The doctor doesn't work for the government. The doctor works for you. Yeah. And by the way, critically on this point, and everybody who's listening, you know, who is a Christian, has to recognize that that also means that you can restore the traditional Hippocratic oath. Right. Right, right. Which governed medicine for over 2,000 years. Mm. which has been adopted by the Christian community. Oh, absolutely. And uh, it's so many cases of Christians in history starting hospitals, going into medicine, taking care of the hurting. And, um, you know, the love of Christ constrains people to to want to care for and love their fellow neighbor and do this. Um, we're out of time today. We've been talking, very interesting discussion with Dr. Robert E. Moffat. And, uh, Bob, if someone wants to read more, do you have a website address to sure. share? Absolutely. Uh, they can go to heritage.org. And if you get to heritage.org, heritage.org, it's a pretty simple uh, website. If you get to heritage.org, you want to look up uh, two, two things in this topic. You want to look at No Choice, No Exit, which is the book dealing with the single-payer Medicare for All system. You also want to look at the Healthcare Choices Proposal, which is basically a roadmap to reform uh, that we have shared, uh, not only with the Trump administration, but also with members of Congress, oh, that's and beautiful. going in a very, very different, very different direction. Oh, absolutely! It is absolutely critical. It is absolutely critical for individuals to take all of this very seriously, because I think, in so many ways, uh, our country is uh, at a tipping point. We've oh, heard is. this uh, a thousand times, but it is absolutely true, and your duty. Your duty, and it's not, it's not just a good idea, it's your responsibility as a democratic citizen. And I would go so far as to say as a Christian lady or gentleman, is your duty to do what is right, not just privately, but in terms of what you see as right for your fellow citizens in making good decisions. Well, amen to that. Dr. Robert E. Moffitt, Senior Fellow in Domestic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. I want to thank you very much for joining us today. It's been great meeting with you. <laughs> Dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. <laughs> 